Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, please turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 12. It's page 219 if you're using those little black Bibles under the seat in front of you. 1 Samuel chapter 12. The title of the sermon didn't make it into the bulletin, but we'll be looking today at how God's grace is greater than all your sin. God's grace is greater than all your sin. Have you ever done something that you later regretted? Maybe one or two things? You've spoken harsh words to a spouse or a child or a sibling, maybe even this morning, and as soon as they're out of your mouth, they don't come back. Maybe you've neglected your marriage little by little over the years, and now you wonder if you can put it all back together. Some sins have lifelong consequences, don't they? That first cigarette at 13 turned into a lifelong addiction. That first wandering into the web of pornography, it sucks you down into years of secret bondage. What are we to do with our past sins? What can we do about our past sins? If you could find a DeLorean with a flux capacitor and 1.21 gigawatts of electricity, maybe you could travel back in time and somehow stop yourself from sinning. But if Doc Brown is right, you may in the process create a time paradox that will cause a chain reaction that will unravel the very fabric of the space-time continuum. <laughs> so let's, if we cross time travel off the list, what are we to do with our past sin, some of which follows us with lasting consequences for our entire lives? Maybe you could move away to another city, start over, get a new job, a new house, a new spouse, a clean start. Maybe you just buckle down and work hard and put your past behind you. Maybe you can just say, well, I'll do my best to learn from my mistakes, to see how I can become a better person, to avoid doing the same sort of thing again. But some actions have lifelong consequences, and trying to become a better person will not change the consequences. The message of 1 Samuel 12 is both more severe and yet more surprisingly hopeful than you would imagine. We'll see in this text that though your sin is greater than you know, yet the grace of God is greater still. Though your sin is greater than you know, yet the grace of God is greater still. And what's more, we will see that the grace of God is not like a giant eraser that simply blots out your past. It doesn't blot out your past mistakes as though they never happen. Instead, God in his grace is like a master sculptor who wisely and skillfully produces a beautiful masterpiece out of the tarnished raw material of your sin. So that, in the final analysis, his grace will be seen and cherished and praised as glorious grace. That's where we're going in this text. But, let me warn you, we have some difficult terrain to traverse first. First and Second Samuel follows a transition in the history of Israel from the rule of the judges to the establishment of the monarchy. Samuel plays a pivotal role in this transition. He's the last judge, and he will be the one to anoint their first two kings. We've seen that he's anointed Saul already as the first king. He will anoint their second king, David, later in the book. After this chapter, Samuel will fade into the background. He will not, his death will not be recorded until chapter 25, but after this chapter, he'll no longer be in the forefront. In this chapter, chapter 12, you'll notice the narrative really slows down. When you're reading the Old Testament, there's lots of action, and then all of a sudden the narrative slows down. It's time for you to take a closer look and pay attention to the words. This is an extended teaching that Samuel gives to the people. Over the last few chapters, we saw the people of Israel asking for a king. Somewhat surprisingly, God agrees. He gives them a king, a tall, handsome fellow named Saul, who would lead the people in battle against their eye-gouging Ammonite neighbor, Nahash. Chapter 11 closes them with a scene of great rejoicing. We saw that last time we were in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel eleven fifteen. just glance back there, the verse right before our text. It says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So far, so good. 
Now, it's not clear whether Samuel's address in chapter 12 occurred at Gilgal during the celebration or maybe at a later time, but in either case, the author intends us to have in mind this great rejoicing of Israel and their new king as the backdrop for his address in chapter 12. What would you expect him to say? They've just defeated their enemies. They've just anointed a new king, Saul, who has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring deliverance against their enemies. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. All seems to be going well with this leadership transition. Maybe he would offer some word of congratulations, some hopeful note about the future. Surely he'd look upon the might of the military and the rejoicing in the worship of God as a sign of God's favor upon the people, wouldn't he? How could you have a large group of people gathering to worship God with great emotion and great success and have it be a bad thing? What could possibly be wrong? Or could it be that God is more concerned with obedience to his word from the heart than outward religious activity and success? Let's look at the word of God together. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is God's word for us today. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord, that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king." So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of God. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts to understand your word and to see how it applies to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Samuel comes out of the gates swinging. He knows that underneath their success, their emotion, there lurks a dangerous enemy that will destroy them. From the outset of their request for a king, Samuel knew that their intentions were not right. We'd seen this in chapter 8. When they first asked for a king, Samuel was displeased, and he said that they had rejected God. We saw that again in chapter 10, verse 19. Samuel says to the people, Today you have rejected your God, the God who saves you from all your calamities, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, some time has passed. They've defeated the Ammonites. They're worshiping God. What's the big deal, Samuel? Can't we just move on? We have anointed our king. God has given us a deliverance. Can't we just leave all this sinful self-reliance business behind us? No, we cannot. Sin must be brought into the light. It must be confessed. It must be forsaken. There is no other way for the people of God then and now. Sin is a cancer that will destroy you. Do not think that you can sing joyful songs to God on Sunday and ignore the sin that lurks in your heart. God, in his kindness, would not have it that way. He would have you bring it out into the open to confess it, to turn away from it. The devil would have you ignore it. The devil would have you move on with your life as though nothing has been wrong. And you might agree with the devil. It just seems too difficult, too awkward, too humiliating to confess your sin just like it seems difficult to undergo radiation to kill cancer. Only a fool would ignore a cancer diagnosis, but how easily we ignore our sin. If you are living this morning under the guilt of unconfessed sin, pornography, sexual morality, outbursts of anger, bitterness, resentment, do not ignore it any longer. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will obtain mercy. Confession of sin is, by God's grace, a step on the path to healing. It's not to embarrass you, not to shame you, but it is a mercy of God to rescue you from all the ways that sin will destroy you. Find a mature Christian friend or an elder in this church. Reach out to them, confess your sin, and ask for help. Samuel does not start off to joining in the excitement of the new king. Instead, he speaks hard words to the people. Hard words that are aimed at producing soft hearts. Hearts that will repent of their sin. He brings the scalpel to excise the tumor of sinful self-reliance that has grown in the heart of the people. And this is a mercy from God. Both then and now, it is God's mercy and kindness that exposes our sin and brings us to repentance. We'll consider this text under two main headings. First, in verses 1 through 19, your sin is great. And then verses 20 to 25, God's grace is greater than your sin. Let me suggest to you that we can understand verses 1 through 19 as though Samuel is a prosecuting attorney. He's bringing charges against the people of God. He's aiming for a confession and admission of guilt. Let me give you first a high-level overview of his argument, and then we'll consider it more closely. Verses 1 through 6 are his opening statement. He opens by vindicating his own leadership before the people, and the people affirm his blameless record. Then you have the main body of the address in verses 7 through 18. In this section, you have two pieces of evidence. I'm going to call it Exhibit 1 and Exhibit 2. And in between, you have the charge. The charge is in the, right in the middle. You see it in verse 12. Uh, it's summarized in this way. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. 
when the Lord your God was your king. This is the main point of his address. They have sinned greatly by rejecting God as their true king. And Samuel frames this charge with two pieces of evidence. Exhibit 1, verses 7 to 11. Exhibit 2, verses 16 through 18. In each case, he introduces that evidence with this phrase, Now therefore stand still. You see that in verse 7 and verse 16. The word could also be translated, take your stand, as though you're presenting yourself before a judge for trial to hear the evidence. And that's how the New American Standard translates it. Take your stand. So exhibit 1, verses 7 through 11, is the righteous acts of God in the past. Exhibit 2, verses 16 through 18, is the power of God in the present. And then finally, you have verse 19, which is the guilty plea. So, if you're taking notes, the full structure, you have an opening statement, verses 1 through 6, exhibit 1, verses 7 through 11. Right in the middle, you have the charge, rejection of God as the true king. And then exhibit 2, the power of God in the present, verses 16 through 18, and finally, the guilty plea. Samuel opens in verse 1. I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. If you look back to chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, you see there is when the elders of Israel gather together and they say to Samuel, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations, But the thing displeased Samuel. If you go back to chapter 8, you see Samuel prays to God about the matter. And surprisingly, God instructs Samuel to grant their request. He says, obey their voice and give them a king. So Samuel opens his address in chapter 12 by reminding the people that this whole king business was not his idea in the first place. He didn't like it from the start. He'd only agreed to it because the Lord had told him to. Not only that, but Samuel, he goes on to clarify that he had not oppressed or defrauded the people. Remember what he said kings would do in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18? He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your land, he'll take your fields, he'll take your servants, he will take, he will take, he will take. Samuel, on the other hand, we read in verse 4, has not taken anything from any man's hand. Now, if you're one of the Israelites there in the crowd rejoicing about your new king, you're probably beginning to wonder where Samuel's going with all this. Aren't we here to celebrate? Well, if they doubted his intentions, verse 7 makes it more clear, and they undoubtedly begin to squirm when he says to them, Now therefore, take your stand. This word, take your stand, is used in Job 33, verse 5 in this way. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. I think that's the tone here as well. Hear now the evidence against you. The New American Standard translates verse 7. Take your stand so that I may enter into judgment with you before the Lord. It turns out Samuel will not be breaking out the champagne and confetti after all. Here he presents exhibit one of his case, the righteous acts of God in the past. Verse 8. Notice the pattern that Samuel highlights. Verse 8, your fathers were oppressed in Egypt. They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent them a deliverer in Moses and Aaron. The pattern, God's people cry out to the Lord in their need, and he delivers them. Verses 9 through 11, your fathers in the land, they were opposed by the army of Hazor, the Philistines, the king of Moab. They confess their sin. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Jerubal, which is another name for Gideon and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel to deliver them. Again, you have the same pattern. God's people cry out to the Lord in their need, and he delivers them. This is what we saw in chapter 7. Under Samuel's leadership, the Philistines had gathered against the Israelites. The Israelites, through Samuel, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord thundered from heaven to deliver them. God's people cry out to the Lord in their need, and he delivers them. Now, this is not some academic history lesson to be quizzed on later. Samuel is building his case against the people by reminding them of the past record of God's deliverance. Over and over again, in surprising and unexpected ways, God has gone out before his people and fought their battles for them. And God's deliverance is proof that he is king. 
This is what kings do. We just sang about it. Born thy people to deliver, to save. Born a child and yet a king. Kings deliver their people. They deliver their people from their enemies. So, calling upon the name of the Lord for deliverance reflects a proper view of God as your king. If you truly believe God is king, you will call upon him for deliverance. Now, if you turn this around, not calling upon the Lord for deliverance, instead, relying on your own ideas, your own plans, your own strength, in a word, self-reliance, that may be a virtue in America, but self-reliance in the Bible is high treason. It is a rejection of God as the true king. And this is the essence of the charge that Samuel now raises against the people in verses 12 through 15. He's shown them that the historical record shows God's faithfulness to save, that God is himself a mighty king. Exodus 15 calls him the man of war who fights for his people to deliver them. He can be trusted to deliver when these people cry out to him. And now in verse 12, we read that a new enemy of God's people arises. Verse 12, you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. Now, some of you might be putting it together, well, They asked for a king in chapter 8, but we didn't hear about Nahash until chapter 11. There's actually extra biblical evidence, some um, writings from Qumran that indicate that Nahash was actually wreaking havoc. One commentator called it optical destruction on the people east of the Jordan River for quite some time. And this fear of Nahash was actually probably what's behind their request in chapter 8, that, that they would have a king to go out before them to fight their battles, even though Nahash is not mentioned until chapter 11. So, when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You expected from the pattern that they would hear about their enemy and that they would call upon the Lord. But no, they ask instead, for a king. And herein lies the issue. This is the substance of the charge against them. It was not that having a king itself was sinful, but the heart attitude that rejected God from being their true king. Underneath their request for a king, they had stopped trusting God. They had come to rely on themselves and their own efforts. Now some of you might be thinking, what's the big deal? We live in a culture where Celebrities are honored for publicly scorning the President of the United States. So we may not rightly feel the weight of this issue. Our instincts are not calibrated as they should be. We are accustomed to rulers being snubbed or mocked or ignored. But the kings of the ancient Near East would not tolerate this kind of treatment. When Esther approached the king without his invitation, she was not giving interviews to the national news. She fasted and prayed because she feared that she might be killed. When Daniel's friends did not bow to Nebuchadnezzar, they were not celebrated on social media. They were thrown into a furnace to be incinerated. I'm not saying that these rulers were good and just, but that we should pause for a moment if we feel intuitively that defiance towards God's authority is not a big deal. Suppose the God of the Bible really is the supreme ruler of the world. Suppose that he's absolute in his authority and power and justice, and yet also infinitely good and infinitely wise and infinitely loving and infinitely happy in himself. Suppose he is, in fact, the source of life itself, and that he has offered that you and I can share in his life and joy and delight if we will submit to his rule. Suppose that he knows that every time his human creatures reject his authority, they step away from the life that he offers and towards death and destruction. Suppose his authority is actually for the good of those who obey him. Like a mother who commands her daughter not to play in the street. That mother is an authority over her daughter, but she does not exercise her authority abusively or arbitrarily, she in her own limited and finite ways wants to use her authority for the good of her daughter. And so when the daughter looks back at her mommy, smiles defiantly, and runs into the street, there are actually two problems. One 
is that mommy is not receiving the honor and respect and authority that she is due. And the second is that the daughter has now ventured into terrible danger. And that is but a faint shadow of what is at stake when God's supreme authority is rejected by limited, finite creatures like Israel and like you and I. When the people of Israel reject God's authority and choose a king instead according to their own desires, it is nothing less than high treason. It is the sin behind all other sins. It is the unbelief of Genesis 3. God doesn't really know what is best. Yeah, God delivered us in the past, but he didn't know about Nahash. He can't really be trusted to take care of us. We've got to make it on our own. It's the same unbelief that lies underneath my rebellion against God and underneath yours. Of course, we may address it, in, we may address it up in different ways and never articulate it quite so openly. But we are more like the people of Israel than we are unlike them. Don't we struggle to believe that God's ways are really and truly good? In the uncertainty of the economy and the wars and everything on the news, or maybe more personally, the uncertainty of your career or lack thereof, your relationships or lack thereof, your finances or lack thereof, and all the other things that go wrong in your life, in all of that uncertainty, do you trust that God is a good Father who will abundantly provide all that you need in His time? When your mom gets a cancer diagnosis, do you trust that God's ways are good? In the moment of sexual temptation, do you truly believe that God's ways are good? Or tomorrow morning, about 9 a.m., when your plans for the day are derailed by those other humans that God has placed in your path, your siblings, your children, your co-workers, your neighbors... At that moment, do you believe that God's path of self-sacrificial love for others is good? Or do you inwardly grumble at the interruptions that obstruct your sovereign purposes in your life? So here is the charge. The people of Israel have rejected God as their true king. They've chosen for themselves a king as they think best. But notice even now, they cannot escape God's sovereign rule. In verses 13 to 15, Samuel reiterates the covenant obligations that have been on the people ever since Moses gave them in Deuteronomy. And Joshua reiterated them in Joshua 24. And now Samuel reiterates them again. Obedience to God is the path to life and blessing. Disobedience is the path to death. God will not be mocked. Whether you like it or not, you live in his world. Children, maybe if you're six, seven, eight years old, listen for a moment. Think about gravity. Now you tell me, if you climb up in a tree this afternoon after church and you jump out of that tree, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall. Now let me ask you this. Will it matter what you believe about gravity at that moment? No. Whatever you believe about gravity, you will fall to the ground. In the same way, God is the true king of the world. He's the king over you. He's the king over me. He's the king over everything that exists. And whether you believe it or not, he is on his throne. Some people might not believe that God is king, but that doesn't change reality. This brings us now to exhibit two in Samuel's case against Israel, verses 16 to 18. I can imagine that some of his audience may have been nodding off to sleep. Who really needs history anyways? This sounds like the stuff of seminary classrooms. I'm interested in real life, they say. Verse 16, Samuel repeats that phrase that we saw in verse 7. Take your stand. Here is the second exhibit to show that God is the true king. Take your stand and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? It would have likely been late spring or early summer, May or June. A time when storms were not expected in that place, like a thunderstorm in August here. Not impossible, but certainly not unusual. Not, not usual. Samuel continues, I will call upon the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. 
Notice the purpose of the thunder and rain. It was to show the people that their wickedness is great. How would thunder and rain do that? Well, ordinary thunder and rain would not necessarily do that, but thunder and rain at this time, in this place, at Samuel's request, would be like a neon sign blazing across the sky. God is the true king. God is the true king. And this is what we see in verse 18. Samuel called upon the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Remember, this is the same people that in the previous chapter rejoiced greatly over their new king. But now, they fear greatly. They see that their new king is actually the proof that they have rejected their true king. Their great rejoicing melts into great fear. Notice the impact of the word of God and the power of God upon the people of God. Their eyes are open to see their sin, their wickedness rightly. Brothers and sisters, we must be wary in our day of any flippancy or irreverence or disrespect toward God. He is the great king of all the earth. Any supposed outpouring of God's power that does not result in great fear and awe and reverence and humble confession of sin is no true work of God. If you have a light view of sin, I can assure you that you have a small view of God. As your view of God grows, your understanding of your own sinfulness grows with it. And this is what we see happening with the people in verses 18 and 19. Now the people have heard the charge against them. They've heard exhibit one, exhibit two, and now they enter their plea in verse 19. Guilty. All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. The people have not simply realized that they sinned this one time against God. They did not just make a mistake, a wrong decision. They realized that this latest rejection of God as their king is the symptom of a much deeper problem. It is the latest instance of a lifetime of sin and rebellion against God. Notice how they say, We have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. This one act is like the tip of the iceberg of their actual sinfulness. It's not like they were pulled over for driving 45 in a 35 mile per hour zone. It's more like they finally realize they've been fighting for the wrong side all their lives. Imagine if you'd been a loyal Nazi soldier fighting for Hitler in World War II, unaware, as many of them were, of the horrors of the concentration camps, but genuinely zealous for the good of the fatherland. Now imagine that you're captured as a prisoner of war, and you finally realize that all of your zeal, all of your duty, all of your obedience, all of your courage, all of your work, all of your intelligence, everything that you once found pride in, has all been in service of an evil beyond your imagination. This is the wave that came crashing down on the people in verse 19. And it is the wave that crashes upon every sinner who sees his or her sin rightly. This is why the people ask for mercy. Pray that we may not die. Death is the just penalty for our rebellion against God. If death seems too extreme, then we have not understood the true nature of sin. When the people see their sin rightly, there are no excuses, no plea bargains, no extenuating circumstances. They are not the victims of unfortunate circumstances, unfortunate upbringing, or social pressure. They sin because they are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And if you do not admit your sin and your guilt before God, then you will receive the just penalty for your sin. An eternity of suffering that is perfectly and justly proportional to the magnitude of your rebellion against your true king. This is verses 1 through 19. 
your sin is great. But now we'll see in verses 20 to 25 that God's grace is greater than all your sin. Verses 1 through 19, Samuel's made his case. His leadership has been vindicated. He's presented the evidence of God's past record as king, his present power as king. He's charged them with treason for rejecting his rule. They've admitted their guilt before him. Now we come to the place in the trial where we would expect to hear the sentence for punishment to be meted out, for the judgment to be declared. And we hear these gloriously unexpected words. If grace does not surprise you, then you have not understood it rightly. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have indeed committed all this evil. You have indeed deserved eternal death and judgment. Do not be afraid. How can he say that? Your heart may condemn you and say, you've messed up too much this time. There's no way back. But God speaks in his grace to you. Do not be afraid. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. 1 John 3.20 Some of you would prefer he say something like this. Yes, you messed up, but just commit yourself to a lifetime of doing good, community service, working hard for others, and if the good you do in life outweighs the bad, then things will be all right in the end. Maybe you think you're a Christian, and that's the sum total of your faith this morning. But that is absolutely not what Samuel says, and that is actually antithetical to what Samuel says. If he did say that, how could he tell them not to be afraid? How would they know if their good deeds could ever outweigh their bad deeds? If the grace of God towards sinners was dependent upon their obedience, then they would have no choice but to be afraid. But the grace of God for the people of God is unconditional, free, sovereign grace. It is not based upon the obedience of the people, but upon the good pleasure of God and his commitment to his own name. This is the main idea of this section. It's found in the center, verses 22 and 23. You see there the free grace of God. And it's framed on either side with exhortations to obedience, One in verses 20 and 21, and the other in verse 24 and 25. Verse 20, he says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or or deliver, for they are empty. The promises of pleasure in the world are like a mirage. You finally reach them, and they evaporate leaving you empty, because they are empty. But God is a fount of never-ending joy, solid, lasting joy. So do not turn aside from him. Now, if you know your Old Testament, maybe you're beginning to scratch your head about now. In fact, the whole history of the Old Testament is the story of the people of God turning aside from him to seek their good in the empty promises of the world. It's a sad story, watching their continual march toward destruction as they forsake the life and joy that can only be found in God and instead seek to slate their thirst from the empty cisterns that can hold no water. So if God's grace was based upon their good deeds outweighing their bad, they would have every reason to fear. But it is not. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This sentence is a gold mine. How can the people of God not be afraid in light of their great sin? First we see the statement, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his people. He will not leave them. He has committed to make them his own, to be their portion, to bring them back when they wander, to woo them back though they give themselves to other lovers. If you are a child of God, then know for certain that he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. Why? Why will God not forsake his people? Because he loves them? Yes, he certainly does love them. Because he keeps his word? 
Yes, he keeps his word, but that is not what the text says. What does the text say? Why will God not forsake his people? You read that in the next phrase. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Here is the bedrock foundation underneath the astonishing grace of God toward sinners. God will not forsake his people, though they sin, because of his own great name. In other words, God's commitment to his own name is the reason for his grace toward sinners. God's concern for his own glory is the foundation of your hope that he will not forsake you. How can this be? Why are these two ideas wrapped up together? Why is God's glory and your not being forsaken, why are they connected? Notice the third phrase in the verse. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God has chosen by his free grace to make a people for himself. This is what Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7.6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession in all the earth. And this is what the apostle Peter repeated to the church, the people of God in this age, that God is gathering to himself. He told them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 2.9. God has chosen by his free grace to make a people for himself. Now and for all eternity, the fame of God is intertwined with the fate of his people. The fame of God is intertwined with the fate of his people. If he were to abandon them or forsake them, then his name would be tarnished because he has chosen them to be his own special possession. And so the certainty that God's people will not be forsaken is the same certainty that God will not allow his name to be tarnished. Think of that, Christian. God has promised to bring you to glory. You may not feel like that tomorrow morning, but God has promised to do it, and his great name depends on his success. How can he not bring you to glory? Not because of your inherent goodness or any merit that you bring to the table, but because of his great name. His unbreakable commitment to his name overflows in lavish grace upon you. He does not save the righteous, but sinners. So believer, the words of 1 Samuel 12.20 are for you. Do not be afraid. Though your sins are great, the grace of God toward you is greater. I'd like to point out four brief observations about the grace of God from these verses now in closing. We've heard about the overflowing abundance of God's grace for his people. But now notice these four things. First, notice that the grace of God does not cancel out the commandments of God for obedience, but instead empowers us to obey them. This last section, verses 20 through 25, it's full of commands. Notice that in verse 20, verse 21, and also verse 24. Serve the Lord. Fear the Lord. Do not turn aside from the Lord. Serve the Lord with your whole heart. The grace of God does not give you a free pass to live however you see fit, but instead it fills you with gratitude at the free favor that you have received at the very moment when you expected the death sentence, at the very moment when you should have heard the sentence meted out upon you. At that moment, you hear those words, do not be afraid. And it motivates you now to wholeheartedly, willingly, readily offer your life to God. Not the obedience of a fearful slave to a master, but the obedience of a joyful son to a father. Second, notice the grace of God does not separate us from the people of God and the means of grace that God has given to his people, but instead provides spiritual nourishment and protection for his people through his ordained leadership. Remember in verse 22, Samuel's just promised free grace to the people based on the bedrock commitment of God's commitment to his own glory. Now, someone might therefore conclude, if my salvation is based on God's commitment to his own glory, well, I don't really need to mess around with this 
messy business of the local church, other sinners who are going to bother me, and then much less I'm going to, am I going to submit to leadership that is made up of other sinful men who are probably going to make mistakes and get things wrong? Notice what Samuel says in verse 23. Immediately after his statement in verse 22, he says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. The ultimate good of God's people was guaranteed by God's commitment to his name. And yet, Samuel knew that his spiritual leadership was one of the means that God would use to bring about this end. Notice the two things that he's committing to. He's committing to pray for the people, and he's committing to teach the people. He went so far to say that it would be sinful for him not to pray for the people and teach them. Many years later, the apostles would say that they must devote themselves to two things. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, they must devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so on, down through history until today, the elders of God's church must devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of God's word because it is the, the grace of God works in his people through those very means. Though the elders of the church are feeble, frail men, though they make mistakes, yet God nourishes and provides for his people through their ministry. Thirdly, the grace of God does not erase your past, but instead transforms it and redeems it so that it works for your good. Let me say that again. The grace of God does not erase your past, but instead transforms it and redeems it so that it works for your good. Works for your good. In other words, it's better than a time machine. Notice in this text, we see that the entire institution of kingship is actually evidence of the treason of the people. The entire institution was conceived out of a sinful rejection of God. But God does not turn around and destroy the kingship, does he? What does he do with it? He uses it in his perfectly wise providence. Despite the failures of the people, despite the failures of their kings, he uses it to pave the way for a future king who would come into the world so that the Son of God would be born as the Son of David, to come as the true king of his people. Just like God used the sins of Joseph's brothers to pave the way for the deliverance of the people from Egypt, so God uses the sinful institution of the kingship to pave the way for his Son to rescue his people. This is what Paul means when he says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. It includes your sin and its consequences and the sins of others and their consequences. Take heart, believer. Your past sins, your regret, the consequences from your poor decisions that will last for your entire life. Your mistakes, they're not wasted. In the surprising grace of God, they are, not, they are intended by God for his good purposes in your life. Not that you would wallow in misery and self-pity, but that you would be overwhelmed at the free grace of God toward you, and that you would therefore offer your life as a living sacrifice to God. You cannot change your past. You have no control over what happened yesterday or the day before, or 10 years ago. But you can cling to the Lord today. You can humbly trust him today that he will use your sinful actions, the decisions of your past, for his glory and your good. Lastly, we see here that the grace of God, though it is free for you, is not free for him. Note the ominous ending to this passage, verse 25. If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The word for swept away is used four times in Genesis 18 and 19 to describe the time when God breathed out fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It's also used in Numbers 16, when God split the earth open to swallow up Korah and his followers. From this time forward in Israel's history, their fate as a nation will be intertwined with the obedience of their king. When their king is righteous, he will lead the people into God's blessing. When their king is wicked, he will lead the people to experience God's judgment. And as the history of the Old Testament shows, verse 25 will be fulfilled in a dreadful judgment that God administers first through Assyria and then through Babylon to sweep away the nation of Israel and their king. So how, could these, how can we hold these together? The unbreakable commitment of verse 22 to God's name, and yet the ominous note of verse 25, that those who do wickedly will be swept away. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel message. If you're not a Christian and you've tuned out for the last 45 minutes, listen right now. God has promised that a future king would come, that he would obey God's commandments perfectly, that he would not deserve God's judgment, that he would not be a sinner like you and like me. He would not deserve to die for anything wrong he had done, and yet he would be swept away in the undeserved overflow of God's wrath against sin when he died on a Roman cross so that the people of God for all time might experience the undeserved overflow of God's grace. This is the divine cost that allows God to offer you free grace. If you will humble yourself, confess your sin, and submit to his rule as your king. In 1 Samuel 12, we see how God delivered his people from the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Egyptians, to teach them that he was their true king. And all those deliverances point forward to the day when he would deliver them from their greatest enemy, from sin and death itself. He would defeat the devil He would free his people and the whole created order from the tyranny and fear of death. And this is the deliverance that he is working even now for his people. Maybe today he will work it for you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled to see the magnitude of our sin against you, and yet we still do not even see it rightly. We confess it to you, and we ask that your grace would wash away our sin and use it to accomplish your good purposes in us and ultimately for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.